Oda, 30 feet away. Jumper in the air. He's got it! Lamar Odom has won it for Rhode Island! In traffic, off-balance shot. Thank you! Jared Terrell in Rhode Island has done it in the final five seconds on a circus shot from Jared Terrell. A career-high night for him and a victory for Rhode Island. Look it up, Dutton. Run out, Rowdy, look out! Oh, steal by Vance Russell off of Young. Three. Don't do it to him like that, Vance. Dribbles into the forecourt. Iverson going up. He ducks it home as the buzzer sounds. And Rowdy, the 8-10 champs. We have reached the point of no return. It is now mid-February and college basketball is in full swing. And this, yes, is another episode of Roadie Baseline, episode 9, uh, coming at you right now. Andrew and Gary once more uh, chatting about Roadie basketball and everything about Roadie. Andrew, we, uh, we're, we're really, really close to March Madness. I can, I can feel it. Yes, 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 we are very, very close to March Madness. Hello, Roadie Nation, and uh, yeah, we're going to, unfortunately, it looks like Roadie won't be in, in uh, March Madness, but we do have a action-packed episode with you for you guys today, and uh, Gary, I got one question for you before we jump into it. What's that? Do we want to give the surprise away now, or do we want to keep the fans on their feet? On their toes. The only th- the only thing that stinks is that if you you found the episode on social media, you know what we're announcing. So I feel like we we should give it away now. All right, I guess I'll give it away. As many of you Rody fans know, there was a very interesting article released by WPRI's owns Maury Horshgordon on Tuesday evening, and Gary and I were lucky enough to get in contact with Maury, and he was gracious enough to come on our episode, so you'll have that interview later on with you guys this evening. But that was, it was very nice of Maury. Thanks for coming on, and it was one hell of an interview, and all the best to him. And I personally, I was a very big fan of his piece, and it was very eye-opening for me and for, I'm sure, a lot of you roadie fans out there. Yeah, gr- a great piece written by Maury. Uh, before we get into this week's episode, make sure to follow us, facebook.com slash baseline. And on Twitter, at Rody Baseline, make sure to also subscribe to our podcast. And please leave us a five-star review, uh, all of those. We've had a lot of those this year, so shout out to all the fans for doing that. Uh, but let's get into it. Two games for URI this week. Let's start out with uh, Saturday night, UMass coming to the Ryan Center for the second game uh, of the year uh, in the series. Uh, 8 p.m. star on national television for URI and Big news out of this one, uh, Trey Mitchell and Noah Fernandez were not able to play. They were out for this game, uh, which you would think would, would would have helped URI, but in the end, it didn't really make too much of a difference. Yeah, Gary, if you would have said before the game that Trey Mitchell and Noah Fernandez were going to be out of this game, I would have said sit fats, let them rest up for the St. Louis game, and coast our way through this game but unfortunately that did not happen URI played decently in the second half lucky to be down five at the half they came out of the gates in the second half well they managed to take a 47 43 lead with 14 25 to go but from there it was all UMass UMass outscored the Rams by 18 points the rest of the way Carl Pierre was shooting out of his mind five of ten from long range um 
19 points total. It was just not what any of us expected going into that game. And quite frankly, I was a little shell-shocked with how bad that URI played in that second half. I mean, you can tell Fats wasn't right. And not for nothing, this is what led to a lot of question marks was why did Antoine Walker only play 24 minutes when he was having a career night? By career night, I will read you his final stat line. 12 of 17 from field goal range, 2 of 2 from the free throw line. He had 14 boards and 26 points. In 24 minutes, that is that is insane. It just makes me wonder. He had his way down low. It just makes me wonder what could have been if he would have played. He played 9 minutes in the first half. Makes me wonder what could have happened if he would have played more in that game and maybe less for other players. Don't get me wrong, Fats played well. He was 3 for 5 from the field. Three or four from the free throw line. So it wasn't all bad, but I think Antoine the biggest mistake was Antoine Walker not playing more in that game. Let's uh let's go to uh what David Cox had to say in the postgame press conference uh on Antoine Walker. Yeah, I'm not sure. Well, I just know that he finished the game twenty five minutes with a career high points and rebounds. Yeah. Yeah. So why he played I mean, in the first half, I am I'm, I'm I'm not sure. What what is he normal play in the first half? Probably about nine to ten minutes. I, I understand, but but when he's having a career night the way he is, is there sometimes an adjustment to a rotation where, you know, when they're they're lacking a big man like Trey Mitchell, that he should be, you know, in there a little bit more. Yeah. But, with the success uh, he's had, with the success he had. He ended up with a career high tonight. Uh, so if you believe that I should have played him more in the first half, that's the first time you've asked me anything like that. Uh, you know, maybe we can discuss that later. I'm, I, I didn't play him. Uh, I played him nine minutes. I'm not sure how to answer that question. I played him nine minutes in the first half. He finished with 25. He finished with a career high tonight. Uh, he had an awesome night. That's a, that's a rough quote there by David Cox. Yeah. that uh, It's going to sound weird, but it sounded like he was a politician there. He sounded aggravated, and he sounded like he was just dancing around the subject. All he really did was repeat the stat line, and, and we'll get into it more with Maury in the interview with Maury. But hey, first off, you have to credit – the media for finally asking the questions. But secondly, back to the Antoine thing. It'd be one thing if Antoine was in foul trouble. He had two personal fouls the entire game. That's not the issue. He played nine minutes in the first half. You're down by five. He's having a career night. Worst case, you play him. He gets tired. You have the halftime break. Or you play him. You get a big enough lead. The second half, you'll be able to take him out. It, there's just, it was made no sense to only play him nine minutes in the first half and 24 minutes overall. You needed to win this game. Your best player, he was, he was the best player on the entire court, and he was showing it, and I don't know. And it's just the way that, the way that David Cox answered that question, I know it didn't sit well with you, Gary. It didn't sit well with a lot of roadie fans, and it didn't sit well with me. The added, like a little bit of the attitude he was giving, but... I don't know. It's just maybe Cox has a plan. Maybe they're starting to play for seeding. I don't know. But my personal opinion that Antoine Walker personally should have gotten at least 30 minutes, if not more, in this game. Like, Jeremy Shepard got 34 minutes. Ish got 27. Mikhail got 21. Got 31 minutes. Fats got 27, which I think we can all argue that maybe that was a little too much for, for Fats. But there was no reason why Antoine should have been the least amount of minutes out of all those guys I mentioned. Yeah, and and I mean, I'm going to throw these stat lines at you here. URI did not make a three-pointer the whole game. 
Uh, they were in it for a little while, 65-60, and then UMass just broke the elastic and took it home. Uh, obviously, you know, shots by TJ Weeks, Carl Pierre, Marco, Mark Gasparini, uh, back-to-back three-pointers, just everything just fell apart, uh, and they just led the game for the final nine minutes. The story of this game for UMass was Carl Pierre and his ridiculous shooting that he had in this in this game. I don't, I don't. We've seen Carl Pierre for for a few years now. I can't remember a game he shot he shot like this. And you got to tip the cap when you're on, you're on. But outside of that, it was more you or I giving UMass the game, in my opinion. Yeah, and I mean, it is what it is, right? I mean, they he without Noah Fernandez and Trey Mitchell, Carl Pierre has a breakout night. They get other stars that contribute, and, and UMass just takes it and, and takes the One win. big thing I do want to mention, the one good thing that did happen in this game, Fats Russell did break 200 career steals, and he did pass the one, the great Tyson Wheeler, while Tyson Wheeler was there. That must have been a cool moment. But other than that, it was a very down night. Hats off to Fats. And hopefully he can get those last two steals to uh, become the all-time leaders in steals for the University of Rhode Island. So final score from Kingston, UMass 75, URI 63. Uh, Then, obviously, going into Wednesday night, a game that myself and Andrew have talked about for a little while. You know, the worry that St. Louis is coming back from their pause and looking for blood. And and we couldn't have been more right about that one, Andrew. (laughs) Yeah, I don't necessarily agree. Like, I obviously St. Louis won the game sixty-seven to sixty, but for everything that this team has gone through, everybody bad mouthing. I think a lot of people went into this game with a bad taste in their mouth. Personally, don't get me wrong. There were times in the game where URI did not play well, but I think URI played as good as you can expect them to play in a game like this. And this was the first game that I really noticed the lack of communication and the chemistry this team has on the court. We see it off the court. You or I, the guys like each other. They hang out with each other. But this St. Louis team, they've been together for years, and you could tell. They were hitting shots. They were trusting guys who were open, make it like the ball movement that St. Louis had was incredible. And quite frankly – I'm not upset with you or I losing by seven points. They're down six at the half. They only lost by a point in the second half. I think with how talented and close-knit St. Louis is, and I've been saying this for a year, Gary, teams who are old, that's why older teams win in March. You have the chemistry. You guys have been playing together for years. And you or I I themselves, prime example, those two tournament years, we were a senior-laden team. And the first two years while we were cracking it, yeah, we weren't very good. We were having struggled years like this. And I think that's gonna be our us in two to three years. This team is young, they haven't played they haven't played together, and you can tell there's 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 hope there because they were able to hang within seven points of the St. Louis team. And I just think that the fact that they were able to hang with the seven team just shows you how much talent is actually there and hopefully we'll get to it at some point. But there's a lot. There were a lot of good things. There were a lot of bad things that also came in this game. Don't get me wrong. You're right. I didn't play the great game, but I wasn't. I wasn't mad as mad as some people were with this game. Yeah, I mean, obviously, St. Louis looked like coming off their pause that they've kind of gotten back into the swing of things. And 
I, I know we, we've said this before, right? If St. Louis ends up being the number one seed in the A-10 tournament, number one seeds do not have good luck in the A-10 tournament. But this year is a whole lot different. There's there's no fans allowed as of right now, maybe 250 fans. But it's not the usual crowds that you see in these games, you know, where the crowd can kind of control that game. But St. Louis on Wednesday night just looked like a team who you know, lost to LaSalle, but wanted to come out and wanted to make a statement out there. I mean, obviously URI held with them for a little while, you know, kept an eight point cushion for, they held with them the whole game, Gary. They held with them the whole game. They got down double digits a couple times, but they held with them the whole game. I like, I don't know. It just, there were, I don't know. I'm not, I, I know you were very, you were really upset with this after, after the game, but, and I tried to talk you off the ledge cause I knew they weren't going to win, and I was I just wanted to see a measuring stick of where and where as much as everybody says we're not that far off. If we can tweak a couple of things, shots start falling. Shots did fall for them a little bit. Jermaine Shepard three of six from the three point line. Three point line. Malik Martin was two for two from the three point line. Like, give it. They didn't shoot. They shot twenty six percent in the first half from the field. Thirty three from three. I mean, I don't know. I just. I don't know. The bit my big the biggest thing that jumped out at me was Jalen Carey only getting three minutes. What was the point in that? He came in in the first half for three minutes, didn't see him the rest of the night. He turned the ball over. Is it just Cox trying to keep his his uh turnover streak alive? I don't know. Like those three minutes it was completely pointless. And I think that's when St. Louis pulled got their six-point lead and pulled away, and you just could never get over that hump. Makes me wonder what would happen if he would have just benched Jalen the entire night. And we also need to mention that Alan Bertrand went to the bench and Ishmael Leggett started. You also got to wonder if that's a start of something new. Yeah, potentially. Uh, a couple notes I do want to bring up. Uh, Yuri Collins from St. Louis got injured in the first minute of the game. Uh, came back in nine minutes later, uh, only for a short time, and then we saw him up elevating that ankle. So he was out for the game. Also, Mikel Mitchell uh, did get into some foul trouble six minutes into the second half, uh, which explains why Jermaine Harris did play a little more, uh, try to play a little bit of defense. I will say, though, that I did love seeing uh, Mitchell against Hassan French uh, down there was was great both of them kind of battling each other I think uh, Mitchell got a block on him as well so uh, it's it's something that I I would want to see later on in March uh, as this team kind of improved Mikhail looked pretty good Mikhail looked pretty good and I know Jermaine Statland doesn't jump out at you but Jermaine played pretty well he hit a three he had three rebounds he played solid defense he didn't get any fouls I mean Jermaine did what we needed Jermaine to do he held his own he held his own against Hassan French with not many people thought he did. He got a few boards. He moved the ball around. Jermaine played what you needed him to play, and I wasn't like I wasn't happy, but I wasn't mad with him. I think a big number that URI fans should take with them, with all the talk about St. Louis's bigs and how big they are, URI was able to out rebound the Billikens forty-five to forty, which I didn't think was going to happen. I really thought that. St. Louis was going to destroy us on the boards, especially when their one of their guards got a double double with rebounds. Like, I don't know. I just that I I felt bad going to the game. I mean, obviously, I don't feel great. Obviously, you or I lost, but I have hope that you or I can turn this around. St. Louis is a great team. 
St. Louis is a senior-laden team getting ready for a run in March. And URI, St. Louis just held the business. They felt comfortable playing with each other, and URI just isn't there yet. And I think one more summer together, and maybe these guys will be ready to go for for be the next St. Louis in a couple of years. And I hope a lot of people feel that way and don't give up. Don't give up on Coach Cox yet. I I'll I'm gonna ask you guys to forgive me if like say next year we're in the same thing. Maybe then we can start giving up on Cox. But don't give up on Cox yet. He's a great guy. He's a good coach. And just remember last year we had 22 wins with him in his first year. We were right there at the end, too. So we made it to the semifinals in the A-10 tournament. I know there's a lot of stuff going on on Twitter. Let's just not give up on Coach Cox yet in this team. Let's see what they can do. Something's got to be said for them only having two games left and having played 21 games already. Yeah, final score out of St. Louis, St. Louis 67, uh, URI 60, which puts their record at 9-12, and 6-8 and eight in conference play, and also on a four-game losing streak as of right now. Uh, but let's get into the news around the A-10. Not too much this week, Andrew, right? Not too much, but it was also a lot of big news. First off, we're going to start off with our Weekly awards where you have that Mustafa Azmil is the rookie of the week again out of Dayton. And Bones Highland is your player of the week out of VCU. Then you have the, we have six programs currently on pause. You have Richmond who is slated to come back from their pause on Sunday. And then you have Duquesne. GW, St. Joe's, Davidson, and UMass. The one thing I will say about UMass is UMass it just isn't their basketball program. Their entire athletic department is on a COVID pause. So all the best to all those programs, especially UMass's. I know we have our issues with them on the court, but when your entire pro when your entire athletic department is on pause, that's a little bit scary. So hats off to them. Um, still no news on how the seating will work, but a lot of us are starting to think it's going to look at percentages and hopefully the amount of games played to benefit the University of Rhode Island personally. Um, but hopefully hopefully that will be out soon. Also, uh, with those pauses, just so everybody knows, with teams being paused, led, led to a lot of cancellations for Saturday's games. So URI, which we'll chat about in a second, is not playing Davidson. Duquesne and George Mason is also postponed. Uh, and also St. Joe's versus Dayton. The three games postponed for the A-10 on Saturday uh, due to COVID pauses. So a very late schedule leaves only GW and LaSalle, St. Louis against Fordham. The only two games on Saturday for the A-10. Yeah, so we're going to jump into some NCAA news. The NCAA announced the the uh, schedule for the NCAA tournament, and boy, is it a doozy. We got the first four being played on March 18th with all four games being played on that for on one night instead of two games each night which is on a Thursday March 18th which will lead into the first and second rounds playing on Friday March 19th and Saturday March 20th with coverage beginning at noon the two greatest days in college basketball if you ask me the second round will be on Sunday the 21st and Monday the 22nd followed by the following weekend where your Sweet 16 will be on Saturday and Sunday. The Elite Eight will be on Monday and Tuesday, with the Final Four being on Saturday, April 3rd, and Monday, April 5th. 
boy, Gary, do I love that schedule because that means we got basketball pretty much all week. Now, obviously, we we know the reason that the schedule is so tight and different is because they're all playing all the games in the same location, so there's not really any travel concerns uh, or teams having to travel. Most uh, games, I think they said, like, 75 or 80 percent of them are being played in indianapolis and then a couple on the outside uh so it should be it should be a different ncaa tournament but it still is an ncaa tournament which is is makes me happy i would say i know it makes you happy andrew absolutely and with that that leads us into our bubble watch for around the a10 and current and the local teams Currently, Joe Lenardi has two teams in, that being St. Bonaventure as the automatic qualifier as an 11. He has VCU as part of the last four in, which would be a 12 seed playing Oregon in the first four. Remember the last time VCU was a first four team? Led them all the way to a final four berth, so hopefully those VCU fans like that. St. Louis is currently in the first four out with Richmond in the next four out. Providence has left the bubble, according to Joel Lenardi, and is not in the tournament. And Bryant, due to their COVID pause, has lost the automatic qualifier, according to Joel Lenardi. And for those who are caring, he does have UConn as a first, a last four team in playing Stanford as an 11 seed. And that is your look around the A-10 and the N-C-double-A. Oh, and I forgot. I got to throw my, my my team. He's got Michigan as a number one seed for all those who care. I know I do. <laughs> But just so, putting so that out there. Podcast intro, not a Michigan podcast. But yeah. Yeah, I'm just saying, if anybody wants to talk Michigan hoops, I got you. <laughs> so, so yes, that is your news around the A time, which leads us into our quick game preview. Uh, so, you or I did have a game on Saturday against Davidson that has been postponed because Davidson is currently still on a COVID pause. So, what that leads us to, which is. I would say is good and bad in some ways. So URI technically only has two games left. Uh, there's a they which is which is nuts which is nuts to think. It's crazy as a put, look looking at this schedule between now and when the tournament starts. They only have two games scheduled. One of them is February sixteenth. It's a Tuesday against Dayton, which is at home, and then they don't play again until March second, which is against. St. Joe's. It's just mind-boggling. And for all those who are all worried about the team being hurt and all that stuff, there's a lot of time coming off. Even if you throw in one game a week with day, because they only have two games to reschedule. It'd be the Davidson and George Washington game. Those games are going to get rescheduled until these teams come off pauses. So look, this team could become very dangerous if they get fresh between now and the tournament. And which could be very dangerous for the rest of the A-10 if this team can get some practice time, play together, and rest up and get – if you're telling me if you can get fats off for a month, some healthy fats before you go into March – before you go into that A-10 tournament down in Richmond, whoo, I'm not saying – you're telling me there's a chance, Gary. Yeah, this uh, this schedule is a little weird. You know, obviously the Davidson game got postponed, and then per the A10, that game won't be rescheduled. Uh, and the GW game obviously still has to be rescheduled at this point, uh, which means URI plays Dayton on Tuesday, February 16th. Uh, this Dayton team we played at Dayton already lost that game 67-56. We don't need to go too much into Dayton. We talked about them a couple weeks ago. You know, obviously they have their big stars, you know, in Jalen Crutcher and and. Mustafa, who who has been the rookie of the week two weeks in a row, and he he's looked very good as well. So, 
it doesn't surprise me that we have this game coming up. Obviously, the rest, I think, will benefit URI. And you know what? Hopefully, we don't add another game and we just have to play at St. Joe's on the second because I think the time away uh, is well-deserved for this team and will help them uh, heal up these nagging injuries that the team has. Well, well, not for nothing. I kind of wish we do get the GW game just to give them a little bit of run so they're not completely out of – they go. They'd only go a month with playing one game, but – I completely agree. The rest would be great. This Dayton team, since that game against URI, though, they've struggled. They lost to VCU by nine. They lost to Duquesne by five. They only beat George Mason. But other than that, they had a game postponed against Richmond. But outside of, like, you, they're one and two since then, so they look to be floundering. Maybe you can catch catch them after. They're playing St. Oh, they're, they're also canceled on this weekend, so... They're going about two weeks without playing either, or a week without playing. So maybe we can catch them. It's going to be a nice, interesting game. I think Jay, if you can shut down Jalen Crutcher, I mean, small. It's not a, it's not an easy task. But there, you are. I definitely should be looking out for blood. But like you said, Gary, I think it's going to be a nice test. Hopefully, hopefully you or I can get the win, get some rest, and then hopefully I. I would like to see them get the GW game in between now and March 2nd and just a little tune-up just to keep their legs fresh. But other than that, it's definitely going to be interesting to see how the next month unfolds for the University of Rhode Island basketball. And a lot of questions hopefully can get answered and hopefully they can fix a lot of things in the practice court which they seem to be getting a lot of time with over the next couple weeks. So, yes, one game for URI Tuesday, February 16th, uh, 7 p.m. against Dayton. That game is nationally televised uh, on CBS Sports Network. Uh, big game coming up for Rhodey. Absolutely, Gary. Hopefully hopefully there's, a, there's rumors of a big snowstorm coming on Tuesday, so hopefully everybody can settle in and watch URI, hopefully get back into the winning, sh- winning side of things. But with that, Gary, it's that time of the week. Time for, not for nothing, this interview came up pretty quick on us. We didn't, the article came out and we reached out to Maury and he was gracious enough to come on and it was, it was a lot of, it was very eye-opening and it's going to be a very nice listen for all you fans, so let's take a listen to that. All right, Rudy Baseline fans, we are joined now by WPRI's Maury Hirschgordon. Uh, you may have heard him uh, with Bill Koch on the Pick and Pop podcast uh, but he is joining us today on Roadie Baseline. Maury, it's uh, really good to have you finally on the show. Hey, guys. Thanks so much, Gary, Andrew. You guys do great work. Uh, I've seen you guys your guys' stuff on Twitter, uh, listen to your podcast. So really good stuff. Want to give you guys a plug first. But thanks so much for having me on. And uh, it's always great. Now that the Super Bowl is in the rearview mirror, college basketball has taken over. And from here until the first week in April, that's all it is. That's all I focus on. Oh, greatest two months in all of sports. I love college basketball. I was actually born born during March Madness, so I guess it's in my blood that I'm going to love college basketball till the day that I die, and boy, is it! I love the sport to death. <laughs> well, the reason why we have you on, Maury, uh, Maury, you released an article on uh, on Tuesday talking a lot about David Cox's need to change his approach. Um, the biggest thing that I do want to point out, obviously you can find that article on Maury's Twitter, also on the WPRI Twitter, and also on our Twitter feed as well. Uh, you brought up a little bit in that article and also kind of chatted also about two other videos. Uh, one where you had coach Cox after the press conference, uh, against UMass, where you kind of asked them a question regarding, uh, starting, uh, Antoine and only playing him a certain amount of minutes and also showing the defensive side 
of the fails against VCU with that buzzer beater by uh, Bones Highland. Uh, you know, what was the culmination of kind of getting the article together and, and just piecing all of this all into kind of one giant take on, on the season, so to say? Yeah, so I, I guess it, it really just comes with being a journalist at its core, right? You know, when you're a journalist, you're a storyteller. Um, and when you cover a team, like we cover our college hoops teams, because it means so much to everybody in the state and people in the region, uh, especially with the success that, that both PC and URI have had, you know, in the last couple of years, you have to um, just be a sponge. Everything you hear, every interview, every conversation with a coach, things like that. And um, I guess from the time really back in the spring when the pandemic first hit, you start to talk to some of these new transfers, you know, whether it's Alan Beatran, whether it's Malik Martin, and you get a feel for some of these guys. Um, unfortunately, wasn't able to see them throughout the summer or the fall. Still can't go to practice. And we've just allowed, you know, allowed in the Ryan Center within the last month. So you take as much as you can from these Zoom interviews. And I think that's really where I started to put some of these pieces together. It was that December 29th Zoom interview. Uh, and we had just talked to David Cox. It was his media availability. They had played that first A-10 game, lost at home to Davidson, but then had that 12-day stretch where they were at home waiting for the next two in that three-game homestand, which was both St. Bonaventure and St. Joe's. And to that point, they had played a, a pretty significant out-of-conference schedule, had a couple nice wins, played well in a lot of those games, played up to some competition, but also missed out on some opportunities. Western Kentucky, Boston College, if you look back, those were two wins they probably should have. So at that point, they're three and five. Okay, they're underachieving, but there's no point to like, you know, throw the haymakers out there and really say this team's underachieving, right? COVID, all the protocols, the mental health, the isolation. I mean, there's a lot that, that kind of taxes on a kid, especially when you're 18 to 22 years old uh, and you're on a college campus and it's an unusual environment than what you're used to. You used to being around your friends sitting in the cafeteria, grabbing lunch, walking the halls, walking the campus. So really the antennas went off around New Year's and they go and beat St. Bonaventure and they go and beat St. Joe's. So I'm like, okay, after that quote that he said, we're going to turn things around, you started to see some signs, although they really shouldn't have beat St. Joe's and St. Oh, Joe's sure. didn't have its best player. You they know, they really got bailed out. Um, similar to last Wednesday when Ish Leggett got fouled like 70 feet from the basket. To me, if you're a ref in that situation, it's got to be blatantly obvious to call that. And if even if the defender's close, you can't call that. that could, that's another story for, for another day. <laughs> anyway, you know, URI gets the calls. And like we know, early in January, Fats goes to the line, clutch, makes three free throws. They go on to win in overtime. Okay, so they're two and one. One, you can't really pull out an article like this when a team's winning, because then that's just probably the dumbest of, dumbest of things to do to lose all credibility. But two, what I did is more just store it in the back of my mind for later, right? Hey, so he said he's going to change the rotation. They're going to limit it. He said, I like to play 10 or 11 guys in the first half if you show up to practice and work hard. But then the second half is tailored to production. I didn't really agree with that. I, don't, I mean, I've watched a ton of, ton of hoops. My dad grew up in Syracuse. I live and breathe Syracuse Orange. So I've, I'm used to watching high-level hoops. I don't, don't really agree with that, but I can't take my own personal bias into a story. So then you continue to watch this team through January and the early months of February. They shoot the ball so well. Exhibit A is the game at Richmond. How you can shoot 55% from the floor, be that good from three on the road, yet really never have a chance in that game right. yeah. really started to get my, my wheels turning. I'm like, you know, 
wow, they're seven or 10 points worse than Richmond, but they shoot the ball phenomenally. You can't be turning the ball over 15, 18, 20 times a game. Then, then that Saturday, they go and turn the ball over a ton of times, but they end up beating VCU. So again, I'm like, okay, I'm sort of getting close to something I have here, but then they win. So they kind of pull you back in. But since that win at VCU, I think their only wins are at LaSalle, home against George Mason, Fordham at home. In a 52-42, you know, just a, it was, I don't even know what to call it. <laughs> it was a puke fest. Let's call it that. A yeah, rock fight. Yep. Good, good word. A game that shouldn't have even been that close. Uh, and you knew, and then the head coach got fired the day after. So, so <laughs> we're getting to that point, you know, they're not playing well in their wins at LaSalle, at Fordham. Really, they haven't played well in any wins other than Seton Hall and at VCU. So then they go on this little three-game slide at Dayton. They come home and lose to VCU, and then they lose to UMass. Um, VCU is a winnable game. They were up four in the final 47 seconds. Like I, like I said in the article, 0-5 in games decided by five points. 1-6 um, in games decided by six points, uh, two possessions. So then they lose to UMass. They should never lose to UMass in the first place this season. Rebuilding squad. UMass hasn't had a, an above a 500 record since 2013, 2014. And to boot, which was the craziest part, they have, as you guys know, Trey Mitchell out, borderline NBA player, could have been a power five player. And then Noah Fernandez, who's a transfer from Wichita State out. Probably two of the most important guys, two of their top three leading scorers when you look at it statistically. So um, I'm preparing for my sports cast that night, Saturday night. And it's like 10:18, and sports hits at 10:21, and Cox comes to the podium, and I think a reporter asked the first question, but I had to get something in because I knew when I go out there for sports, it's three or four minutes, but then I have to wait for the end of the show and then come back in, and I was probably going to miss him. They lost. It was ugly. There weren't going to be many questions. I had to get mine in. So I normally, when I ask a tough question, an honest question, one that deserves questioning, I usually wait a little bit to kind of have the coach warm up but I had to get mine in. So I was the second question of the press conference after the opening statement and the first question. Uh, and as I put in the article, I said, Hey, why did Antoine play nine minutes? He sat more than he played in the first half. And you guys watched seven sure. of nine from the floor, was incredible. Points, six rebounds. He was incredible. And to boot, he's URI's most efficient player per Ken Palm. And he leads the conference. He doesn't lead the team. He's not fifth in big men. He's not second. He's first. And it's clear he's shooting over 61% from the floor when he's the best player on the court and the other team's best player who happens to be a forward is out as well. All of those factors that just really had my wheels turning. And then the fact that David Cox really just kind of regurgitated the stat line, whether I caught him off guard, he didn't know how to answer it or he was just trying to find a way out of it because he knows sort of what he's doing. I don't know. I'm not in his brain. I'm not on his coaching staff. That is kind of the long winded answer of how everything kind of went together. And it's really an eight or nine month process, similar to you guys. You follow the team 12 months a year. You talk about them, every move, every transfer, every recruit, right? You watch it all. You put everything together. Uh, I've been covering this team three years now. So missed the, missed the Hurley years, even though I had a friend from high school who was at URI and kind of stuck with it uh, during the <laughs> Hurley years. And um, had watched, I've watched Fats Russell play since he was in seventh grade. I'm from Philadelphia, and I have a, uh, a really good friend that runs a lot of premier high school basketball tournaments. 
So Imhotep Charter, the school that Fats Russell came from, I've, I've always been familiar with them and the, and, the comp, and the competition that they play as well as the players they produce. So had a Philly connection there. So I always kind of followed URI from afar, but then the last three years really been attentive, really been, you know, all in uh, on college hoops. And obviously that helps our audience and our coverage. And, you know, between three years of covering Cox and just not missing many press conferences or Zooms. And then this year, there's nothing else to do other than watch college hoops. Yeah, um, <laughs> we can agree with you on that and one. Then, and then, like I said in the article, fine, five, 10, maybe 12 games. You know, 12 games is normally you play 10 in the out-of-conference, then one or two in conference play. Maybe you want to keep the same, the same strategy. But I just felt 20 games in, and then they haven't been on COVID pause. They, they were lucky enough to have kids on, on campus since July 20th for team workouts. It all just said, you know what, something has to be done. Don't want to bash the guy. Like I said, off the air before, before this, I think he's a great guy, had all of his guys vote. Uh, he, he's all empowered them um, as black men in America. Uh, and I'm all for that. But um, when you separate David Cox, the man from David Cox, the coach, I think that's where a little criticism has to come in at this point in the season. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Off the court, one of the nicest guys. I remember Gary and I have gone to season ticket events and we've talked to him. Wicked nice guy. He'll do anything. He's does great with the players, teaches them, and being able to not go in a COVID process to say something about the guy's trust in him. But the big thing that I noticed about things changing was that VCU game where you posted that defensive video. It was in the second half. There were three guys around the hoop, and a ball, a rebound came off the net, and it just hit the ground. VCU player picked it up, got a nice, easy layup. And that's when I was like, wow, there's something really wrong with this. And you were on to something. And that's when I started really questioning his coaching and it was just that's when I knew something was up and hopefully he can get it changed around soon but that was that was when I first noticed it I I just want to say Maury I don't mean to interrupt you I just want to say that video the VCU video then watching the UMass game all I could see was that like I, I I could see it happen multiple times and and it was pretty blatant when you're looking at it and going okay well this isn't just one time it's happening over and over and over again and this is philosophy guys like this is rotation this is who's in who's out are you really paying attention to the game do you have a feel for the game and while i think cox is a first of all an ace recruiter right got a lot of guys under under hurley and i think he's a solid coach you just look at the turnover issue and when i first started asking him about the turnover issue and other people on the beat um sort of got defensive a little bit but then in his opening um statements in kind of the following games he was saying hey yeah you know even if they won or lost whatever there was always some type of line of hey turnovers are still are still the achilles heel we're still working on them like so then he started understanding okay it's a problem i need to at least address it so it shows the media that i'm not just ignoring it but then there was nothing to show for it there was no result there was never a game that was like hey there's a game of just six or just eight turnovers Sure, they've had a couple of 11 or 12s, but you need to see with such a guard-dominated team in such a guard-dominated league, and he mentioned this in his first press conference during A10 Media Day. He's like, we have, we have great guards. We're in a, we're in a guard-dominated league. We're going to go through our guards. Shepard and Fats and Ish and Jalen Carey. I mean, you look at the team, and I believe they're like 290th in assist-to-turnover ratio, and I know they've played a lot more games than a lot of other teams, so you can't just look at total turnovers, which I believe they're like 350th in, 
But if you do the, the, the ratio based on the amount of games played, there was never an adjustment. And then not only that, but then you look at like boxing out and just not like basic defensive principles of taking away the baseline, not leaving your feet, closing out well, turning around, finding a body and putting a body on and boxing out. Boxing out is not that hard. That takes no skill. That's all effort and that's all heart. So these that's are how I made my varsity team. Exactly. Exactly. It's what it is, Andrew. I mean, you look at it and it's like, man, like they're so talented. You can't, you can't teach somebody how to do, you know, a spin move like Mikel Mitchell can. And he's come on really well. And oh, I think yeah. that's one of the bright spots of this season, right? Mikel Mitchell, you, you can't teach that. You can't teach like Antoine Walker's athleticism for him to be able to throw down a windmill dunk like he did. Right. That was, that, that was the only as, bright spot of that game. And for as much as he struggled, you can't teach Fats' quickness. You can't teach Ish's IQ. And like Cox has called him Jeff Doughton 2.0. And that's exactly what he is. Like that's a great assessment of it. But you can say, hey, if you don't close out well and take away the baseline and turn around and put a body on somebody, things you can control. You'll miss shots. You'll miss foul shots in big moments. Things you can control in the basketball court and in sports in general, if you don't do those, in my opinion, and I'm not a coach, but if you don't do those things you can control, your rear end should be on the bench for a minute or two. Yeah. Hey, do you understand what you did wrong? Sure, and get right back in the game. Don't bench somebody for that, but get them on the bench for a minute. So in their mind, they say, okay, let me make that mental switch. I need to listen to what coach is saying. And I never really got that from this coaching staff. And this has been, this has been for, for weeks now. I mean, we're six, seven weeks into conference play. And we're still seeing issues that happen in the beginning about a conference normally. I think the biggest issue I have is the fact that you see it in spurts that the talent is there and the, and the chemistry is there and they do it for like four or five minutes at a spurt. And then they go back to their old ways. And I think that's the most aggravating thing. If you were bad or if you were good for a whole game or a whole season, I don't think fans would be having the issue. The fact is that you can see it. You can see them playing well. You can see them shooting well and they just can't get back to it. And that's, I think that's the biggest frustrating part about this whole thing. And I know you guys have me on for the article I wrote, and that's something I mentioned. Like, to play 10 or 11 guys 14-plus minutes, I know it's not sustainable, but, like, think about all the things it leads to. Like, you can't get into a rhythm. They're subbing, like, three, sometimes four guys at a time. Like, that's like hockey. I mean, like, those are hockey shifts. Like, that's not basketball, you know? All, all good teams play seven, eight guys, maybe nine, but that ninth guy's playing, like, three or four minutes. If there's an injury, if there's foul trouble – it just doesn't lead to good chemistry. Um, and I think that's a big reason why they haven't played kind of a full 40 minutes many times this year. They've played it a couple times, like you mentioned, and there's always those spurts, but it's never a full 40. Now with that, where do you think the changes in the rotation need to come from? Who would you take? Like, Yeah. So I, I kind of mentioned it at the end of the article, sort of like giving some, some ideas. And, and I definitely mentioned that the, that the talent's there. Cox can get, can get talent in the door. It's not just like harnessing it. So if I were him, and I brought this up on the podcast with Bill Koch um, a couple of weeks ago, I know I'm on every other week. So I think it was two episodes ago now. So maybe a month. So I said, Fats, Jeremy Shepard, Ish, Antoine Walker, Mikel Mitchell, a splash of DJ Johnson, because he can, he can stroke it. And even if he isn't similar to Fats, when he's on the court, teams have to notice him, right? Teams have to account for him. It stretches the defense, even if he's missing shots. They have to respect that he's close to a 40% three-point shooter. 
and then Makai Mitchell. And David Cox talked about him from the start of the year. He's one of the most versatile players on the team. He can give you 15 to 20 points every once in a while if you need, if his shot is on. But something this year that you need when the offense has been struggling and suspect is good defense. And that's what Makai gives you, in my opinion, better than many players on the URI team right now. Right. That's as up there as, as one of the better defenders at his position. But what Malik gives you is he can guard the two, the three, the four, and maybe in a spurt, pick and roll situations, if you're playing a zone, he can maybe even body up the five at times, right? So he's one of the few guys you can trust out there on the court, as well as Antoine Walker, who can really guard three positions, maybe four. That's the type of player you need coming off the bench. And then, like I said in the piece, is Jermaine Harris suitable for three minutes if he needs to go in there and make sure nobody gets an easy layup, use up your fouls, and block a couple shots and grab a couple rebounds? That's fine. That's a fine role. Not 15 minutes a game. Can Alan Beatran come in hot and provide a spark off the bench? Hey, man, you get two or three shots. You're in the game to shoot. That's why we, we recruited you. You're an all-level CAA guy. You shot 40% from three at Towson in your first two years. Shoot the ball when you're in there. But after three or four shots, they're not going in. Boom. A lot of stats for him don't show up. But at 6'5", 220, the same size and weight as Malik Martin, he doesn't grab rebounds that much. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't play great defense. So sure, guys get by him off the dribble a lot. And that leads to defensive breakdowns. And other teams get shots. But you don't notice in the box score that it starts with B-Tran on the defensive end. And right. offense isn't their issue. Their issue is defense right now. Now, uh, now, obviously, in the article, you also bring up, I, I love the Jermaine Harris point, but also the the one problem that Andrew and myself have talked about in the episodes the last couple of weeks is how many minutes Jalen Carey is getting, realistically. It's tough. So there's two things here. And I, I didn't mention this one aspect, even though I've put it on Twitter and my social media before. When you get a guy like Jalen Carey, despite him not producing, he's still a top 80 recruit consensus. He still picked your school over a host of other power five schools. So at some point you have to, you have to play him. First of all, you tell him that he's going to play and he has to play for five or 10 or 12 games. Like I mentioned, because the next time a Stanford Robinson says, Hey, I'm out of Indiana or a guy from Syracuse leaves or I mean, I'm trying to think of a guy that's close, like uh, who knows, like a Tyler Kolick, even though he's not coming from a top school. If there's a local guy from New England, from the East Coast, from, uh, you know, from Rhode Island, when there's a guy that transfers out of a top school, top recruit, they're going to look at other top recruits minutes at your school. Hey, did that guy get minutes? If that guy doesn't get minutes, he's probably not giving you even a second look. He, you're, you're automatically not in his top five final schools that he's going to choose. So there is a part of that. You have to play him, but he's had so much time to play through mistakes and play through struggles and, and get on campus early and, you know, try to find chemistry with guards and try to find chemistry with bigs and learn the system. And then at some point you have to say, Hey man, 12 assists to 41 turnovers. You're a long ways away from being a top 80 consensus recruit. You are. You have to face the facts. And if we're being brutally honest, because I'm an honest person, and when you're a really good team, you give them their flowers, right? Did Dan Hurley reserve, deserve all the flowers in the world 
those last couple of years of his tenure at URI, every single one of them. And David Cox got him last year because they were really good, other than maybe down the stretch just a little bit. But lack of bodies, Jeff got hurt. There's a couple other scenarios that played into that. But when you're not good, we're not bashing, but it's our job to A, hold you accountable, and then B, find the ways to criticize with statistical evidence. And with 12 assists to 41 turnovers, 20 games into the year, this is how many minutes. And I know we don't have, we're on Zoom right now and you're taking the audio. And I'm putting up a zero. I'm putting up a zero. So unless Ish and Fats are both out and you only have Jeremy to handle the ball, that's when Jalen comes in. You're in the seventh overtime of a game and three guards have fouled out. That's when he comes in. Why, why does he deserve time over other guys? And I get it. Has, has Jeremy struggled turning the ball over? Yes. Has Fats missed a lot of shots? Yes. He also hasn't been 100% this year. Are you going to live through growing pains with a rookie like Ish? You 100% are but he doesn't get minutes in the first half of every single game. I don't care if it's five. I don't care if it's two, but he's been getting like five or six in the first half. I mean, that's a, that's 25% of the first half that to me, you're saying, Hey, go out there. And he always does make one great play, one great steal and compounds it with one or two or three mistakes right after. So it automatically takes that good play and throws it out of the window. Andrew's shaking his head right now because that's exactly what he yeah, says. Every a lot day. of the time, what's disappointing is he steals it on one end, drives down the court, and turns it over eight seconds later. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think what's I think in the long run, what's hurting him and him getting minutes is the fact that Ish is breaking out like nobody expected. Like we all knew that Ish was going to be a good player this year and everything, but I don't think anybody expected Ish to be playing as well as he is playing right now. And I think yeah, that's and, I was on, and I was on Twitter saying this and, you know, you can go back on my feed and see this. I was a little bit ahead of, of, of this in terms of he played really well against San Francisco, right? Held his own in the, the first four games in Bubbleville, which those four teams are rock solid teams. Yeah. And even though South Florida might be like a middle of the pack AAC team, I mean, they just play a tough physical brand of basketball. They're sort of like the Providence of the American, right? Not ultra talented. They never really have any blue chip guys, any guys that'll be on the first team of the American league of the American conference, because whether it's Tulsa, whether it's Houston, whether it's Cincinnati, there's just so many good guys in that conference, but they're, 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 they just want to drag you through the mud, right? They want to turn you over. They're long, they're lengthy. And Ish held his own there. So between the San Francisco game and the South Florida game, coming off of two losses, coming in for a top recruit in Jalen, he was behind him at that point because Jalen was starting, which is just a while. Oh, God, that's crazy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that seems just like a whole nother world. And then you're replacing two seniors. So when you're the fourth guard in the depth chart, you know your time is limited. And he was producing. And then the Seton Hall game, he played tremendous. And it was that Seton Hall game when Jalen was hurt. Jalen didn't play that game. Right. That I said, Jalen's minutes should diminish. I think I remember but seeing that tweet and retweeting not, that. Not because of anything he did wrong. And at that point, he was only five games into the season. So the jury hadn't even decided, hey, he's not really fit for this team and for this style. But he played so well that sometimes you just have to continue to ride that. And he kept getting stuffed down the depth chart until David Cox's hands were tied 
and Fats was out, and he got that first start, and he played great. And then he starts against VCU, and he bests his career high that he had in the first start. And then last, and then the most recent game against UMass, he was four for four in the first half with eight assists. I mean, with eight points, and had a couple nice moves. You have to build on that. And then to me, when you know Jeremy and Fats, your clear-cut starters in terms of the backcourt, and you look at that first guard off the bench, you can play through-ish struggles and freshman mistakes more so than a guy who's in his third year in college in Jalen and who's been around top-level basketball. Hey, at three years in, I'm sorry. You're just, just not cutting it. Yeah. This guy, This guy committed to me over other – high power, high major competition. Yeah, I think he had a DePaul uh, offer and I think he had a Wake Forest offer and he had a lot of other interests from high majors, right? This guy said, no, out of high school, I'm not going to get wowed by like private charters, ACC, Big East. I'm going to come to your program and I want to kind of play right away or at least play a significant amount my freshman year and then have a chance to start. So this guy said, hey, I'm going to come to your program. I like you a lot. Jalen was... Hey, I went to Syracuse. Now I'm looking for a safety net. Now I'm looking for a second place to go. When you combine all of that, you just have to go with Ish. And I was all about that in early December. And I understand completely why David Cox and the coaching staff didn't want to flip it right away. But it just took the flip way too long to happen. It needed to happen like three or four weeks ago, six or seven games ago, definitely before this three-game losing streak. Now that leads me into like talking about next year a little bit when it comes to what do you think? Obviously we all can agree that Fats isn't going to use that extra year of eligibility, but we, Gary and I have torn if Shepard's going to use it. How do you think the rotation would be affected if Shepard came back next year on top of you have Trey Berry, that's going to be needing some minute, possibly needing some minutes next year and for whatever other recruits that they get. Yeah, I don't know. I think we can all agree that Fats is probably out just because he's good enough to go pro. And, and Jeremy's good enough to go pro, too. His offensive skill set is, is tremendous. Um, I don't know. I don't know. He's an older guy, right? So if you think about it, like your pro career, by the time a lot of guys, especially small guys with a lot of minutes, by the time you're 30, I'll say two or 33, your pro career is probably coming to an end, at least at least your peak, let's say. So when you're 20, I don't know how old he is, but he was East Carolina, 16, 17 is maybe a 19 year old. So maybe he's like 22 right now, maybe 23. It's just hard to see you eat up one of those early 20 years where he could be in a a little bit lower level of Europe. But if he does really well, then he starts to kind of build his resume and kind of waste that in college. But if he has aspirations of going to an NCAA tournament, if he has aspirations of winning an Atlantic 10 championship, which a lot of guys do, a lot of reasons why guys come back when they have one year of eligibility left, then you stay. Um, but that clock has definitely started in terms of pro ball. So I think that's why he's a little bit more on the fence. Fats has the resume. He's out. You ask about Jeremy. I would say he's squarely on the fence right now. And I guess depending on how this season goes, like, if they go win the last four, make a little run in the conference tournament, kind of like we saw two years ago, maybe he says, hey, you know what? That's exactly what we can be. We just turned it on a little late, right? Let's do that from the beginning next year and have a really good season. If they flounder here and they bow out in the first round or the second round of the A-10s, he goes, you know what? 
We gave it a shot. We didn't have a pause. Like, is this really the best we can do? Then maybe he leaves. Yeah, that sucks. He's right on the fence. I, I can, I, I can see both ends, but uh, I mean, I don't know if it's just a fan of me wanting him to come back for one more year because <laughs> him not getting all that college basketball in, in, in sitting last year really, I know really probably hurt him a lot personally and wish wishing he got that minute but well we'll have to wait and see and i like you thinking that they're going to go on a run in the a10 tournament i'd be all for that one yeah no I, so so i didn't say that so i said if they do oh, sorry yeah. sorry sorry my bad. Yeah, if they do. don't if put they words do. in his mouth Andrew. My, my my apologies i'm already sort of on a uh trying know, to get uh, yeah. there's a lot of attention right now <laughs> if they so like if they do then it's like hey maybe i come back like that was really sweet you know, I mean, we all thought they were beating St. Bonaventure two years ago in the semifinal, right? They were up like 11 or 12 midway through that first half. They had just beaten VCU, the top like, seed. I mean, they were cruising. And the gas, know. the gas just ran out. Gary and I were there. We could see the gas physically running out of the night game. You know, if they do make that run. Yeah, if, uh, if. if. And they have two just, I would say, their toughest games of the year. I think Davidson's better than VCU. Out of 10 times, they win six or seven. I mean, at St. Louis, who has clearly woken up after that COVID pause and a prime example of, uh, you know, coming off of a COVID pause, how tough it is, right? They lose to Dayton at home, which is fine. Uh, but then you go to LaSalle and lose. Um, but then they just beat St. Bonaventure. So they're clearly back on track. And then you go to Davidson. So I think, I mean, I think you're thrilled if you're a URI fan and you split this week. Um, but you're definitely underdogs these two weeks, yes. these two games. Yep. And then the next one against Dayton at home, knowing that Fats isn't 100%, I just don't see how you can confidently, as, a, as an unbiased third party, go into it saying Rhode Island should be favored. At the best, I think it's a pick em, but I think it really should be Dayton by like three or four. Yep, I agree. So so obviously you, you wrote the article, we've chatted a little bit here, where where do you put the blame on what's going on, right? Do you put it on Cox? Do you put it more towards a new team that hasn't gotten to play with each other before the start of the year? Or do you really put it towards the COVID pandemic and that they've kind of been with each other since July, having gone really to see their families, have had to spend holidays at home? You know, where where does the blame, the blame game kind of go towards? Yeah, so like five or 10 games in, Gary, I would say – it was all of that. But then as you progress throughout the season, more and more, and then you don't have a pause and you continue to get games in. And I think there's like six or seven teams at the time of this taping that have played more games in the country than URI. There's like 347 teams in D1 hoops this year. And I think six, according to my research, when I published the article, had played 21. That's crazy. So it's like you've had the most game time practice time and then just knowing locally Bryant and PC they didn't get their guys until late August so you were like a full month ahead of them and then they could they didn't have certain things I forget what Ed Cooley has said now at this point but like you had guys on campus in late July so between all the practice between all the games between no shutdowns I factored that in early three five seven ten twelve games the last like four, three or four weeks, turnovers haven't changed. They haven't done things fundamentally well. Uh, and then to boot, they continue to play 10 guys at, you know, 
14 plus minutes. And I know there have been some tweaks. And I mentioned that, that in the article. I said there have been some slight changes. And there have. Jalen Carey's minutes have gone down a little bit. But in a game against UMass, when your back's against the wall, you've lost two straight. You shouldn't really get swept by this team. You're at home. You're, you're in prime time on ESPN. Like To play him six minutes and, and, and then to compound it with Antoine, like you're watching him score baskets. Like I just like that is like basketball and coaching 101, right? Like ride the hot hand. Yeah. And then you can't even say it's not even a situation in like the World Series where you take out Blake Snell or like all these, you know, analytics gurus out there. You can't even say, well, look at his numbers, right? After X, Y, and Z minutes, he starts to fade. I said that in the article. The 15 times out of 20 games this year where he's gotten his minutes average, where he's played 21, which is what he's averaging, or more, he's shooting 62% from the floor. And in the five games he's played under, he's shooting 57%. Is 57% good? 57% is good. Is it 62? It's not 62 in a much larger sample size. So yes, it started to answer your question, Gary, with all those factors. But as the season has progressed, and that's a big reason why I was like, hey, you know what? 20 games in, there's four games left on the schedule. It's on Cox and the coaching staff, right? Because, because what makes a good head coach? The head coach personally being really good, but also his assistants, right? And I went to Quinnipiac, not to get go too, off on a tangent right here too much, but I went to Quinnipiac and covered Tom Moore for four years. And according to some of the beat writers that I talked to that, that covered Hurley when he was here, that last year when they were really, really good, Dan Hurley hired Tom Moore, who got fired from Quinnipiac, as his lead assistant. Well, Tom Moore had been around Jim Calhoun for like 10 or 12 years and won, a national and won two national championships with him. And then comes and had 10 years of head coaching experience at the Division I level. So when you have an elder statesman on your staff like that, that elevates your brand. He got zero credit. Hurley got all the credit. Hurley's at UConn. And Tom Moore is now with him at UConn. But when you have a strong staff, that's part of being a leader, is hiring strong, le strong leaders below you. And so, yes, the blame pie is like 75% Cox. But when you say coaching staff and Cox, there also has to be, it has to go somewhat to the assistant coaches. He has three assistant coaches. He has a director of basketball operations. He has a, um, maybe a video coordinator. I think Jarrell Jarrell Coleman is the director of player development. I mean, there's a lot of eyeballs on this product. And the fact that like not, they, they didn't commit to any change. They continue to bang their head into the wall. And they're at nine and 11 right now, 20 games in with the same system. It's right now. Yeah. It's like 90 or 95% Cox. And that's in my opinion, after watching uh, every game this year. That's a great perspective. And it brings me into one of my, our last questions for you. And, We've asked, we had Stone on a few weeks ago and we asked Stone Freeman that the same question. Outside of the practice facility and you coming from the Philly and following Syracuse basketball, it's big schools. What do you think the next step is for the program to get to where us fans want it to be as like a contender in the A-10 every year and not just a few years? Yeah, I mean, the first thing is you've shown that Rhode Island's an attractive school in the Atlantic 10. You've shown, you know, the Hurley years um, and then, even the first couple of years, you know, with David Cox and most of those guys, the majority of the guys, the first two years were guys that were, came in under Hurley, but Cox kept them. It, like Rhode Island fans should know that, that they have a great program now, 
you just don't want it to slip away, right? You want to continue to build on that. And by building on that, you have to be honest and you have to be upfront. You know, you can't guarantee transfer. If you want to be transfer you, which is completely fine. And a lot of programs in mid-major hoops are transfer you, right? A lot of guys that pick up, you know, uh, whether it's you were at a power five school for one year or a power five school for three, and you want to grad transfer because instead of averaging five or eight points, you want to come average 12 or 13 and win a championship. You have to be honest and honesty starts with it in coaching, because if you're not honest and you don't harness 11 guys and pull it back to eight or nine, right. And really focus on, on the, the true talent you have, you're, you're just not going to, you're not going to float. The eight ten is just too good of a league. You know, there's too many good coaches. There's too many good programs. Financially, URI is in the middle of the pack. So St. Bonaventure, uh, Dayton, VCU, um, Davidson. I mean, there's other programs out there that can offer a little bit more, maybe a practice facility, maybe all chartered flights, things that URI hasn't been able to commit to. They were going to commit to them if Dan Hurley stayed, right, and signed an extension if he didn't sign with UConn. So you really have to be buttoned up on the court, coaching X's and O's and really finding, finding a good, you know, eight or nine man rotation. Uh, you can't just play guys nilly willy and just for the sake of it, you know, just because they work hard, you know, that's what David Cox said multiple times. His philosophy is, Hey, if you come and show and you work hard and practice, you'll get your opportunity in a game. And then come second half, we'll judge that on the first half, not how it works in my opinion, in division one hoops, if you want to be a fringe top 25 team, we call it a three bid league, right? You know, the Atlantic 10, there's obviously one bid for the champion, but then you want, even, even though they're carnivores in good just, years. Exactly. Just, right? <laughs> exactly. You want two or three at larges, maybe four, right? I mean, there's been years that they've had four or five teams get in. So the opportunities there, the league has a strong enough out of conference schedule and everything, but you have to just be buttoned up. You have to find the right guys. You have to commit to it. And then if it's not working, you have to look yourself in the mirror and say, hey, you know what? We need to change. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, so you brought this up earlier and, and we've brought it up a little bit on the show. Obviously, we are strictly URI, but doesn't mean that we don't keep an eye around college basketball in the area, right? Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, on Bryant and, and PC this year? Uh, more, I would say more Bryant than PC because, you know, Rody fans, PC doesn't really work that well, <laughs> but, um, but more like your thoughts on, on how they've both been doing in this uh, weird COVID year. Yeah. PC it's tough. I mean, they lost Jared Bynum and I don't think people, people make the Jared Bynum injury out to be a little bit more and bigger of an issue than I think it is. Cause they found that Alan breed, that freshman, you know, who's, who's been pretty good up there. Yeah. That's um, a, he was a surprise. It was a surprise and they never would have found him if Bynum yeah. doesn't get hurt. Right? right. I mean, he was playing a little bit and he was doing well in some limited, limited minutes, but when you let the ropes off and you let him go, he should have been the biggest player of the week, the week they played Villanova and Creighton back to back and had double, double against Villanova and uh, helped them win that game at Creighton. Um, so I think, I think they've been solid. Um, I'm still, I don't know about David Duke jumping to the NBA this year. I know he had a really good, like 15 first 15 games kind of reminds me of Fats's last year where when you're a guard and there's so much attention and I know David has a bigger body and he's probably a little bit more athletically, athletically gifted for his size, you wear and tear, you know, he was playing like 
38, 39 minutes. So I think PC's had a fine year. Um, they've gotten snake bitten. They lost at the buzzer at Xavier. They've lost some other really close games. So I think they've been fine. I mean, PC is always going to be like the fourth or fifth or sixth team in the Big East, right? Last year they popped because they went on a six-game winning streak at the end of the year. You know, you can't bank on that every single season. So they rely a lot on, and Ed has talked about it a lot, just the power of the Big East and right. how and those wins, those wins can just keep you afloat even if you're out of conference isn't great. So I think they've had a fine year. As far as Bryant goes, I think Bryant's had a really good season. The few games they've lost, they've coughed up late leads. And that I would attribute to just not having a lot of experience together in those moments. You know, they just went on their first pause like a week ago, but the difference is they were blowing a lot of teams out. So they never really had that late game practice and feel in. So they lost to St. Francis Brooklyn up like 17 in the second half early in conference play. They lost to Fairleigh Dickinson. They just got swept. Had they split, they'd be in first place right now at seven and three. But I mean, I covered him as an associate head coach at Iona during my four years at Quinnipiac. Quinnipiac and Iona were in the same conference, the Metro Atlantic Athletic Conference. I mean, Jared Grasso is, I think he's dynamite. I think he's really good. I mean, he got his first coaching uh, interim coaching gig at 29 when he took over Fordham for a couple games. So anytime you have a guy like that, who's been building, I think he had plenty of opportunities to leave in however many years he was at Iona, you know, they, they really ran the joint. They were five years in the NI, five years in the NCAA tournament, three years in the NIT. A lot of teams are like happy for NITs and CITs or CBIs, right? Those other two tournaments that a lot of teams, you know, like to go to just postseason flavor, you get a chance to play. No, Iona was like top of the top, right? And they were always called sort of like the West Virginia of the mid of the mid major, right? Up in your face. We're going to play defense 94 feet, 40 minutes. We're going to push the ball as fast as we can. And it's just hell to play us. We're going to play great defense. And Grasso had a, probably a zillion opportunities to leave, but he waited and picked a good situation Northeast where his recruiting ties were. He's brought in great talent. Peter Kiss, their, their star was a freshman, my senior year at Quinnipiac. That shows you uh, wow. just, I mean, how, how long he's been in college hoops. And then they got a guy like Michael Green, who was under the radar, no division one offers, and he turns him into the rookie of the year. So his, his talent knowledge is great. They've won a lot. They've continued to build. You need to still see him win a regular season championship and sustain it for the whole year or get hot in March and win an NEC tournament, I believe, to kind of get him that next job or just be atop the NEC for a while. And maybe you get snake bitten in a couple conference tournaments. But I think it's it's not a long time until he's not in not at Bryant anymore. No, now, you don't think they have to worry about Fordham trying to steal him this offseason? <laughs> I, I think they do. I think if you're I think if you're Grasso, you definitely answer the phone. Where Fordham is in the A10, it's interesting because a guy like Grasso with New York City ties, a New York City kind of a bulldog, talks really fast, in your face kind of a guy, um, demands respect, uh, gets the best out of his guys, and has a winning pedigree. I think because he has that, that confidence, a guy like him, I could see him saying, Hey, you know what? I could win it for him. I know no one has won it for him in a long time. I can be the guy that changes it. I could see that. No doubt. Do I think he ultimately pulls the trigger? It's tough to say. It's tough to say, like I mentioned with Rody and the next steps, like there are four or five clear teams in the A-10 that have the financial backing 
that have the winning pedigree for sustained for a sustained amount of period of time that I just don't know if like, what is the max at Fordham you could get right. right? in terms of like talent in terms of exposure. So do I think he answers the phone? I think he does. I think he's wise enough to say, Hey, yeah, let me at least just hear your pitch. Um, I just think he waits for something better. Um, yeah. and I thought he was going to get the Iona job like this, even, even after two years at Bryant, obviously Rick Pitino walks through the door and, uh, yeah. Yeah. and how many people beating Rick Pitino out? Shoes Grasso to the side there, but um, whether Patino leaves in a year or two, if Grasso can get out of Brian in a couple of years, um, I think he'd be a shoe in at Iona. Um, I just don't think Iona's a big enough jump, like for him, unless he wants to go back to a place that means a lot to him, which he definitely could. I think he's got his eyes set on something a little bit bigger and a little bit better. Not really sure what could open in the Big East. Seton Hall seems locked up. St. John's has gotten on a run recently. Syracuse seems like they'll keep it in house, whether it's you bring back Mike Hopkins, you bring up Jerry McNamara, Adrian Autry, Boston college. It's like the Ivy school, the ACC, another yeah. really job that you can't really succeed in, you know? Mm -hmm. And like, I mean, for BC to get rid of Al Skinner, and I know Al Skinner was at URI and there's a little connection there. Like he had that thing as good as they could have been right. Like getting the sweet 16s atop the ACC, Jared Dudley, top talent, BCC's a tough, BC's a tough job. So it's tough. Um, but I think Grasso's out of there in a few years. Now, uh, now obviously we always bring up, you know, the, the predictions and everything. So Lenardi right now in bracketology has Bryant winning the NEC. Do you agree? Or do you think that they, uh, that they kind of fall, fall off? And if they do fall off, that they still have a, a chance at an at-large bid. No, no, no chance in that large. <laughs> never mind that large. I didn't think I said it, and I was like, nope, never mind. Yeah. Must, did you mean the NIT, Gary? NIT, probably. I think they have. Yeah, a they win the regular season. Every team gets, you know, a chance. So it's it's hard to say. We I, you got to see how they kind of take this COVID pause and and run with it. Um, if they come back and they play well, then I think they have a chance, right? I mean, eight teams usually make the NEC playoffs, and there's only four this year. So that's basically like you're in the semifinals. I mean, you are in the semifinals. It's like winning a first round game. So if you can get into the NEC playoffs, two games, anything can happen. All right. So we're going to wrap it up with our, it's the greatest two months of college basketball. So we need your, who wins the A-10 tournament and your final four prediction before you let you go, Maury. A-10 tournament. You got to go with one of the favorites. I think St. Louis or St. Bonaventure. Um, just buttoned up too well in the defensive end. You got to rely on defense in a tournament like that. The offense eventually over three games, you're going to hit ruts. But when you're talented and you're tough and you're, you're mentally strong, I think it's St. Louis or St. Bonaventure. And then you said final four. Yep. Oof. I mean, outside of Gonzaga, Baylor, every team's vulnerable, right? Um, even a Villanova team who just seemed unflappable at points this year, they lost, they lose to St. John's, you know? Yeah. So we'll say those two, but like we know in the tournament, something's bound to happen that is unforeseen, right? I mean, who's going to be the Loyola Chicago, you know, of this year? It could be them again. You know, they're really good in the Missouri. Yeah, they're really good. But no one's going to sleep on them because everybody knows what they did a couple of years ago. So it's going to be some type of team uh, from a mid-major or maybe, you know, a, a middle-tier power five team like a Syracuse who made a run as a 10 seed. Oregon Zaga as an 11 seed a couple years ago. There's going to be a team out there that people know of, but kind of more up to their standards that then 
just because they have the coach, they have the players, they finally put it all together uh, and they make a little run. So to give you an answer, ooh, I mean, I think if Illinois puts it together, I think they're, yeah. um, they've struggled a little bit, but they're really good. Um, and then just for the sake of this conversation, ugh, um, like I would pick an Alabama, but that offense, like when you rely on that many threes and that pace, you're bound to have an off. <laughs> I don't know. Let's just say Villanova, right? I mean, okay, okay. It's easier to say a Villanova <laughs> than another team. Right? You're probably going to be wrong 99 out of 100 times, but you have a little bit better of a chance going with a team like that than someone exactly. else. I'll, I'll say Illinois is kind of my flyer, um, and then I'll go with the the Blue Bloods. Fair enough. Uh, so thank you, Maury, once again, uh, for being on this episode of Roadie Baseline. You can follow Maury at M. Hirsch Gordon. You can find him on our Twitter. We've retweeted the article and also his Twitter as well. Uh, Maury is on WPRI Sports if you're looking to find him on Channel 12. Uh, but thank you for, for chatting a little bit with us about the article and just the team in general. And obviously, hopefully, uh, we can maybe get you back on closer towards March Madness to, uh, to get you to preview the team, so to say. Yeah, guys, always available. Andrew, Gary, thanks so much. Continued success, you know, with your podcast and your work. And uh, hopefully this thing turns around because the talent's there, like we mentioned plenty of times. The talent is there. Uh, just got to find a way to channel it in the right direction. Absolutely. Thank you, Maury. Thank you very much for joining us back here. I want to give a special thanks to Maury for coming on the episode with us. It was a very nice interview, and it was very eye-opening, and a very it was very nice to see somebody give – ask the hard questions, and give an honest take of the program, which we haven't seen very much of over the last few years. So thank you very much for that, Maury, and I really appreciate that as not only a, a podcaster, but a URI fan, season ticket holder, and alum. So it was nice to see. Yeah, shout out to him. If you haven't gone through, check out that article. It is on our Twitter, uh, and you can find it also on his Twitter as well. Uh, but like we said, one game for URI Tuesday against Dayton. That game at 7 p.m. on CBS Sports Network. But that is it. We are out of here. Uh, hopefully URI can pull out that win against Dayton. So as always, you know, stay safe, enjoy Rudy basketball, and as always, Go Rudy. Go Rudy.